We're going to jump into part two tonight. The focus, if you recall yesterday, was how consumerism has shifted our understanding of Christianity. And tonight we're talking about, it's sort of a continuation of that, but how consumerism has impacted our community, specifically our understanding and thinking about the church. Uh, We covered four parts yesterday. The first part was the problem, which was our captivity of our imagination to consumerism. And then we talked about the three parts, the unholy trinity of consumerism, which was commodification, alienation, and branding. And today we're going to continue with the two last parts. Uh, And I'm really hoping my clicker works. might be turned off. There we go. All right, part five, institutionalization from people to programs. Uh, We began with that story about Epcot yesterday, and I'm going to give you another story that has absolutely nothing to do with the church to just help get our minds around this a little bit. In the first half of the 20th century, the primary way that people people were transported between North America and Europe was by ocean liner, right? There's the uh, Queen Elizabeth, I believe it is, off the coast of New York City. Ocean liners, that whole era of time was kind of interesting because ocean liners were primarily a means of transportation, although they were quite luxurious, and you probably saw Titanic and things like that movie, and you see all the opulence of them. For the most part, these ocean liners were not that luxurious. Most of the people transporting them were immigrants, they were poor, they were in steerage kind of thing. And they were called liners for a reason, because their primary function was to transport people from point A to point B. It's a line. You get on, you get off. It's a pragmatic, practical means of transportation. But something happened around the late 1950s, early 1960s that really disrupted the ocean liner business, and that was jet propulsion. The first commercial jetliner crossed the Atlantic in about six hours. It took most ocean liners of the time about six days to cross. Originally, competition between ocean liner companies was really minimal. There was such high demand for transport between North America and Europe that they didn't really have to compete with each other. And most ships were ships of state. So if you wanted to go to Paris, you were going to take the French line. If you wanted to go to Holland, you took Holland America line. If you wanted to go to England, you took White Star or Cunard. That's just how it was. But once the jet liner came about, the price of air travel began to fall considerably, and more and more people were opting to fly across the pond than sail across it in six days. And in very rapid order, the ocean liners were pretty much out of business. Old ones were scrapped. More new ones, which couldn't be scrapped, were kind of mothballed, and the fleets just deteriorated. And everyone thought the age of ocean passenger shipping was just over because of airlines. But then something really intriguing happened. As always happens... Some business people with some innovation and intelligence got together and said, well, what can we do with these ships now that people don't want to go across the Atlantic? And they figured out a new industry for these ships, and we call it the cruise industry. Instead of transporting immigrants between Europe and North America, they started transporting retired tourists down to the Caribbean or to Bermuda. And the difference between a liner voyage and a cruise is that a liner voyage goes from point A to point B, and for the most part, cruises were circuits. You'd start in New York City and you'd end in New York City, or you'd start in Miami and end in Miami. They went around. 
The purpose of a cruise was not to transport people from point A to point B, but it was basically just leisure, right? How many of you have been on a cruise? A couple of you. Well, something happened that nobody predicted, and that is these ocean liners back in the first half of the 20th century were pretty huge ships, and nobody expected a need for massive ships anymore because of the, the immigrant trade was pretty much over. But within two decades, two or three decades, by the early 1980s, cruise ships were being built larger than the original passenger liners of the early 20th century. And the reason these ships got so big is because the cruise lines figured out that the ship was no longer just a means of transportation, that the ship itself had become the destination. So this is a ship called the Freedom of the Seas. It is currently the largest passenger liner afloat about twice the size of most of the ocean liners in the early 20th century. This ship is so big, it has multiple restaurants, multiple swimming pools. This thing even has an ice skating rink on board. About 4,000 passengers and another 2,000 crew on board this one vessel. The cruise lines figured out that if they could make the ship itself a destination then passengers probably wouldn't bother to get off in various ports of call. And if they didn't get off, that was actually good for the cruise companies because if they stayed on board, they spent their money on board. So the goal became more and more activities on board the ships, larger and larger ships. The point being that the ship itself ceased to be a means of transportation and it became the destination. Now, why am I giving you all this history about ocean liners and cruise ships? Well, I think what happened to passenger shipping in the 20th century parallels what happened to the church in a really interesting and unexpected way. Lyle Schaller, he lives out in Naperville, not far. I, I think he's still alive. He may have died. I'm not sure. He was pretty old. Anyway, Lyle Schaller is an expert in, in uh, church marketing and growth and things like that. He's written a bazillion books on the subject. And he commented that the era between about 1920 and 1970 marked a time period of non-competition among churches. In other words, demand for church was so high that churches didn't have to worry about filling the pews. It was a cultural expectation in North America that most people went to church. And so most churches didn't compete with one another for members. They more or less cooperated with one another. It was sort of seen as unbecoming to compete with another church. Demand was high. But then around the 1960s or early 1970s, a crisis hit the American church as well as the church in North Europe, Western Europe. And that is the baby boomers grew up. And the baby boomers didn't feel the need to go to church. And so they stopped going to church. And within a few years, church attendance started to decline. And some of the oldest, most stately and reputable denominations in the United States and Europe began to shrink and beautiful cathedrals began to go empty. If you've been to Europe and you've been to some of those cathedrals, no one actually worships there anymore. They just sell books and host tours. But in North America, as happened in passenger shipping, some innovative pastors got together and came up with a solution. What do you do when people don't feel the need to go to church anymore? You gotta remember that the church in the first half or two-thirds of the 20th century, a church was a very practical thing. Churches were not elaborate institutions. People basically gathered there on Sunday and they worshiped God and they left. That's what church was. Church was about gathering a group of people and transporting them into connection with God 
And that was it. But these innovative pastors, sometimes they're called pastorpreneurs, which I find a, a funny term, but it's been used in some secular coursework on the subject. They decided that, well, if people don't want to come to church anymore to connect with God, maybe they'll come to church for another reason. Maybe we can offer them oh, a seminar on marriage, or we can teach them how to be better parents, or we can do a daycare, or we can do an auto repair shop in the church, or we can do a workout facility for all kinds of Pilates or weight training or whatever, all kinds of different stuff. And this is really, this whole approach to church was, it's often, the pioneer of this is Bill Hybels, senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church out here in Barrington. When Bill Hybels was 23 years old in the early mid-70s, he was a youth pastor. And he was curious as to why people weren't going to church anymore. So he mobilized his youth group to go and start canvassing neighborhoods in Chicago and the surrounding suburbs, knocking on doors, and they'd ask a simple question. Do you go to church? And if the answer was no, they'd ask why. And then they'd write down their answer. And after a few months of compiling all of their research, what they found was that people didn't go to church anymore because they didn't think it was relevant. And that the church by the 1970s had to now compete with television and rock and roll and entertainment and a really burgeoning youth culture. So they took their research and they began to tinker with the church. And Willow Creek Community Church was launched with about 200 people in the late 1970s. And within a year, it was already at 2,000 people. Because they did away with all the Christian symbols. They did away with the traditional Christian music. They got rid of that pragmatic approach to church and their mindset was, well, if people won't come to church because they don't want God, maybe they'll come to church because the music is really inspiring. Or maybe they'll come to church because the message is really practical. Or maybe they'll come to church because of some other felt need and they just might find Jesus Christ by accident. Now, I don't want to disparage Willow Creek or Bill Hybels or anyone else who's pursued this mindset because I think their intentions are really admirable. They messed around with the formula for the church because they desperately wanted people to encounter Christ and understand the gospel. But as a result of this shifting of the church's purpose, it was simply connecting a community of people with God, and now it became church as destination. Because of this shift, since the 1970s, there has been an exponential growth in the average size of churches in North America. So look at some of these statistics. It's kind, of, it's kind of crazy. Am I doing this or are you? Because I think I'm, is it me? It's actually working? All right. So mega churches are defined popularly as churches with 2,000 worshipers a week or more. In 1970, in the United States, there were 10 mega churches. By 1980, there were 50. That's the era in which Willow Creek launched. By 1990, there were 250 megachurches in the United States, and by 2005, there were over 1,200 megachurches. Now, this sounds like great news, right? I mean, bigger churches means more people are coming to know Christ. Not so. The statistic you don't often see is that over the same period, the average number of churches that shut down every week was 50, meaning Small churches were closing their doors as more big churches were opening them. This is not the growth of the American church. It's the consolidation. It's sort of what happens when Walmart comes into a town and all the local shops get shut down. Lyle Schaller, 
who I mentioned earlier, talks about this phenomenon. It's a little small to read, but he said, the old rule book called for congregations in rural America to cooperate with one another in order to survive. The new rule book calls for congregations in rural America, and I'd say in all parts of America, to expand their service area in order to compete for future constituents. In other words, as demand got smaller and smaller and smaller for church, the church had to come up with more and more things that people actually wanted. And the churches that grow fastest are the ones who can offer something more than just God. They can offer God and you name the list. So like cruise ships, which got bigger and bigger and bigger because they became the destination themselves, churches got bigger and bigger and bigger because it wasn't just about gathering with people and connecting with God. It was, what have you done for me lately? What else can the church provide for me? The bigger the church, the bigger the institution, the more they can do for me, my family, my household. So this has sort of been the trend in the North American church. Now, why is this important? It's important because this shift in the thinking around church has impacted the way we as individuals and households relate to the church. It's changed our assumptions about what church is supposed to be. It's changed our belief about what pastors are supposed to be, what clergy are, what leaders are, what the church is supposed to be accomplishing. Think about this. Not too long ago, the language, and this may not be relevant to you because you may not be in ministry, but I hear this all the time as a pastor. A number of decades ago, people used to talk about reaching unbelievers. The predominant language I've heard most of my time as a pastor is not about reaching unbelievers. It's about reaching the unchurched. We have made the church from a vehicle through which people connect with God into the destination itself. The goal is to connect people to the church, whether or not they actually connect with Christ. Church as destination rather than vehicle. The church is not merely a means, an instrument through which we connect with Jesus Christ. It becomes the ultimate destination. So let's unpack this a little bit. There are four ways to, when you say the word church, one of four things is going to come to your mind. A lot of people in our culture, they're going to think about a building. Now, if you've been around the church any length of time, or you've been to Sunday school, you know the church is not a building, right? We've all heard that. But it's a popular definition in our culture. I'm sure if you looked it up in the dictionary, the word church, it's going to say a building. That's one option. The other is to think of it as an event. Well, I'm going to go to church, meaning I'm going to go to this worship gathering, right? That's another way we use it. But a lot of people probably wouldn't think of it that way either. The third way to think about the church is that it's a community. We'll get into this in a little bit. I'd argue that this predominantly is the way the word church is referred to in the New Testament. But there's a fourth way we think about church, which I think is the one that we really need to unpack, and that is we tend to think of the church as an institution. So when you say things like, um, you know, that, that church is really keeps pushing us for more money, you don't mean the building's pushing you for more money. You don't mean that the event on Sunday is pushing you for more money. You don't even necessarily mean the community is pressuring you for more money. When you say the church, what you usually mean are, well, the institution, the leaders, the structures, the budgets, the programs, that thing. We almost refer to the church the way we talk about the government, right? 
When you say the government, you don't mean Barack Obama, you don't mean Mayor Daley, you kind of mean this structure, this system populated by people. And when we talk about the church, we usually don't mean all of us, community, we usually mean that structure, that hierarchy, that system. And we speak about the church, this hierarchy, this institution, as if it is a person. Oh, that church keeps hitting me up for money. The church wants me to do this, or the church asked me to do that. Let's jump away from the church for a second. Let's talk about another example. Whoop, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, this is weird. Whoop. All right, back on track. Toyota. Toyota is a company with approximately 300,000 employees all around the globe, right? Manufactures automobiles, among other things. Remember their popular slogan back in the day, I love what you do for me, Toyota? Some of us who have owned Toyotas might say, man, I love Toyota. They've always been good to me. Or, that Toyota screwed me. You know, it was a piece of junk. I don't know what your experience with Toyota has been. But we have this tendency to relate to corporations as if they are people. You can say, I love what you do for me, Toyota, as, it's a, as if it's a benevolent individual who blessed you with a wonderful automobile and not 300,000 anonymous employees, part of a global institution which is profit-driven profit and could probably give a rip about how happy you are, right? But we tend to relate to institutions in a consumer society as if they are individuals. And that's also how we tend to relate to the church. You can say, gee, I love new community, and yet have no actual individual in your mind when you say that or any group of individuals because you're referring to this institution called New Community Covenant Church as if it is a person. Now, where did that come from? When did we start thinking about institutions, be they Toyota or our local church, when did we start thinking about the institution itself as if it were a person? Well, it's a fascinating bit of American history. It actually goes back to slavery and the 14th Amendment piece of propaganda back from that era, I am not, I am I not a man and a brother. The 14th Amendment, as you may know, guaranteed equal rights for all people, emancipating the slaves in a more legal format than just the Emancipation Proclamation. But what fascinates me about this, this amendment is not long after the Civil War, some very savvy business attorneys took the 14th Amendment to the courts and argued that corporations are also persons. Now think about this. The same amendment that guaranteed that human beings would no longer be designated as property was used to designate property the equal rights of human beings. After the Civil War, the courts in the United States agreed that corporations had the same rights as a person. And so a corporation could enter into legal and binding agreements. A corporation could be held liable rather than just the individuals or the people who own the corporation or manage the corporation. I mean, this is, if you know anything about business law, this is pretty easy. So around the turn of the century, there was a massive shift in the way American business operated. Sole proprietorships or partnerships were reorganized into corporations with limited liability. And those corporations were seen as people by the courts in law. Around the same time, early 20th century, another phenomenon was happening, happening which was the, 
the real birth and, and explosion of the advertising industry. And in the advertising industry, corporations came to become people in the imaginations of American consumers. Think about it. If you sell salt, if you're a company that sells salt, how do you differentiate yourself from the other company that sells salt? Salt is salt is salt. It's just salt. So why should I buy your salt rather than that guy's salt? Advertising solved that problem. You should buy our product rather than the other ones because there's a smiling Quaker man on the box. Don't you feel better about buying your oats from a smiling Quaker man? Or why should you buy my rice rather than the other guy's rice? Well, wouldn't you rather buy rice from Uncle Ben than buy rice from some anonymous company that just sells rice? Branding, which we talked about yesterday, help people through their imaginations have a relationship with the corporations that sold them products. Think about this. Back in the day, most people got their daily bread, their necessities of life, through actual networks of relationships. You knew the guy who made your shoes. You knew the person who grew your food. You knew the person who made your clothes. You knew the doctor. You knew the butcher. You knew the clergyman. You had relationships. Most of us acquire our daily bread, our necessities of life, not through actual personal relationships with people, but through mediated relationships with corporations. We get our groceries from Whole Foods or from Costco. We get our health care from the HMO or from Blue Cross Blue Shield. We get our clothing from Old Navy or The Gap or whatever. And we have our spiritual nourishment not from necessarily a pastor or a clergyman or a mother or father in the faith, but through a relationship with that thing we still call the church, this institution that will provide for my needs. So we've come in our culture after 100 years now to view institutions, corporations as persons, and through advertising, they've been given faces and personalities through logos and branding. So the goal today, as exemplified particularly through megachurches, is not necessarily to connect people with God, but to connect them in a relationship with the institution who will provide God for them. We're not just interested that you connect with Jesus Christ, we're interested that you connect with Jesus Christ through our church, rather than the church down the road. It's an era of competition in the church. Now, this leads to all kinds of assumptions about community and church and ministry. And one of the best examples I have of this also comes from Willow Creek. They put out a book a couple years ago called Reveal Where Are You? It's a, a survey, a study of spiritual development in churches. But Greg Hawkins is the executive pastor of Willow Creek. I've met Greg. He's a nice guy. Uh, speaking about the book, he says this, and I don't think he's really speaking for Willow Creek here. I think what he's speaking for is basically most churches in North America. He says, we create a variety of programs and services for people to participate in. This is our strategy. We try to get folks who are far from God involved in these activities. We believe the more people are participating in these sets of activities with high levels of frequency, it will produce disciples of Christ. People characterized by increasing love for God and other people. I know that might sound crazy, but that's how we do it in churches. We measure levels of participation. 
This is what I was taught in seminary. This is what I was drilled with by my denomination. This is what we and many others have pursued in churches. You create programs. You get people to plug into those programs. The greater frequency with which they plug into the programs, the more likely they are to be mature disciples of Jesus Christ, full of love for God and others, right? Now, what are the assumptions about church behind a statement like this? One assumption is about how disciples are made. That disciples are made through institutions. They're made through programs and activities. That almost like widgets being churned out of a machine or a factory, you can create systems and structures that if people just engage with regularity on the other end, they will be fully mature disciples of Jesus Christ. So there's a major assumption there about how disciples are made. And the other major assumption in this statement is when he says the church, this is how we do it in churches, we create varieties of programs and services. Within this reading between the lines, how of those four ways of thinking about church, which one is depicted here? Who is the church in this statement? It's the leaders or the organizers of the institution. It's the systems, the programs, the activities. That's the church. This is the result of a hundred years of consumer society of relating to institutions as people. So what was the result? So they did this massive multi-million dollar survey of their church and actually 500 additional churches of all sizes and varieties just to show you that this isn't just a megachurch issue. It affects everybody from small churches to big churches. They did this massive study to determine which activities were most effective at growing people in their love for God and love for others. In other words, which of these strategies and programs actually made disciples? Well, this was the conclusion. Increasing levels of participation in these sets of activities does not predict whether someone's becoming more of a disciple of Christ. It does not predict whether they love God more or they love people more. When Bill Hybels read the results of the study that his own church paid for, he said it was the biggest wake-up call of his adult life. Here's the dirty little secret of church in North America. The more you engage in church activities, there is no correlation, at least statistically, that you will grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Does that shock anybody? It shocked me. I mean, that's the assumption I had always been taught. Let me say that again. The more you engage in church activities, there's no correlation with a growing maturity as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This might explain why some of the people who are most engaged in church are the biggest jerks. So, okay, here's the problem. If institutions and programs don't make disciples, then how are disciples made? How did Jesus make disciples? How did Paul make disciples? What did the early church do to make disciples? Well, after their millions of dollars spent to uncover the fact that institutions don't make disciples, this same research uncovered four activities that when people did engage in them with any regularity, it did seem to correlate with greater love for God and love for people. Here are the four activities. 
reading the Bible, time in prayer, significant relationships with another believer, and serving others. This isn't rocket science, you know, it's pretty basic. Think about it. If you're in God's word regularly, and that can happen in a variety of ways, if you are spending time in silence and in prayer, in communion with God, and if you have another brother or sister, spiritual mother or father in your life who knows you deeply, with whom you can confess your sins and be challenged and grown, and if you serve others, If those things are present in your life, chances are you're growing in your relationship with God and you're growing in love toward others. You don't need a mega institution to do any of these things. You don't need a building to do any of these things. You don't need fancy plasma screens and multi-million dollar auditoriums to do these things. This could explain why the church is exploding in some of the poorest parts of the world while average attendance in churches has been shrinking for the last 30 years in North America. Here's the point. It isn't about having a relationship with an institution. If you break down these four pieces, you could say that the first two are about relating to God. By hearing him in his word, and by communing with him in prayer. And the second two are about relationships with his people. Having a spiritual friend and then serving those whom God has called you to love. Love God, love others. It isn't about a relationship with an institution. It's about a relationship with God and a relationship with his spirit-filled people. Any church that isn't focusing on those two things isn't functioning as a New Testament church. So, a couple questions. How do we help people connect with Christ and not just church institutions? And how do we help people connect with Christ's people in a way that fosters transformative relationships? If you can boil this down to one thing, it's about friendship. Do you have friends who follow Christ, who know you and know him. Because that's going to get you a whole lot further in the Christian life, no matter how many Bible studies you participate in or activities of the church or committees you sit on or worship services you come to. Meaningful relationships with other believers is going to get you a whole lot further down the road as a Christian than any of those other things. Not that any of those other things are inherently bad. I don't want that to be the message tonight. So that's the first part. And the other half of what I want to talk about tonight, part six, is customization. How we've gone from we to me. Customization uh, can be exemplified by two things. One is Starbucks. I was just at Starbucks. I had my tea before I came over here. Starbucks put out this really interesting pamphlet a few years ago. I don't know if you've ever saw it in their stores, but it was called Make It Your Drink. It was basically a a guide to how to order a drink at Starbucks. Anybody work at Starbucks? Okay. This is not to pick on Starbucks. I'm a fan. I like the stuff. But, you know, that really simple menu at Starbucks is incredibly deceptive. I read somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there are over 20,000 drink permutations 
combinations when you look at all the different options you have to make a drink. It's pretty complicated. 20,000. So they put out this pamphlet to help you think through how to order a drink. And, and that isn't the really interesting part. What was really interesting is on the back page of the pamphlet, once you've kind of figured out your drink, you can go online to their website and put in your unique drink formula and they will print you a t-shirt that has your personalized drink. So you guys suppose just walk up and go, I want that. But the idea here is interesting. Remember yesterday we were talking about branding and how people in a consumer society construct their identity through the things they buy? Well, your unique identity can be kind of encapsulated in what your drink is from Starbucks and then you can literally brand that onto a shirt and make it part of your identity. The other thing that exemplifies customization is the iPod or now the iPhone, right? There used to be that if you liked a song, you had to go buy the entire album, even when the other nine songs on it were total crap. Well, now you don't have to do that anymore, right? You buy the song you want, you pay your 99 cents or your buck 29 or whatever it is now, and you don't have to buy anything else. You buy exactly what you like and nothing more. The message seems to be in our culture more and more is that you, you don't have to put up with anything apart from the exact thing you want. You can pick and choose. Here's the definition of customization. Well, not a definition, but close enough. If consumers construct their identity through shopping for brands, then the more brand options available to the consumer, the better equipped he or she will be to construct and express his or her unique identity. Remember back in the day when Henry Ford came out with the Model T and he famously said that you can have the Model T in any color you like as long as it's black? Because that was the only color they manufactured? Well, that's over. That's long gone. In fact, uh, consumers demand choice. There's this interesting website called, website called Nike ID. Are you guys familiar with this? Some of you have these? I don't know. Uh, it says Air Morgan down there. You know what's cool? I think I have a laser pointer on this, don't I? Maybe not. Um, this isn't mine. I've been borrowing it. That's why it's not natural for me. Nike ID is a website where you can go and design your own Nike shoes. Pick out your colors, your styles, all that sort of stuff. On the website, it says this. Nike ID was created to reflect your individuality. Nike ID plus your personality equals customization. The days of picking things directly off the shelves or ordering off the menu as it appears are over. The dominant message in a consumer society, particularly now through digital technology, is that you don't have to put up with anything you don't like. You can have it exactly to your specifications. Make your own playlist. Design your own shoes. Customize your car. You can have it exactly the way you want because if we're really trained and formed to construct our identity through our purchases, then the more options we have and the more uniquely we can manufacture our personal products, clothing, whatever it is, the better we can express our own unique individuality. Does that make sense? Not going over anyone's head. This isn't rocket science. Well, what's fascinating is the same mindset has come into the church. There's a church out in California, Southern California, that's pioneered what they call video venues, okay? Video venues are when you walk into this church on the weekend, they will have multiple simultaneous worship services going on, each one a different style. 
So one might be uh, hymns, traditional kind of sound. And then they have the contemporary worship choruses thing going on in another room. And in another room they have kind of rock stuff. Another one they have rap kind of music. I don't know. They have all these varieties of things. So hypothetically, a family or a household could come in on Sunday and the teenagers go to one setting and you know, the baby boomer mom and dad go to another setting and grandma can go somewhere else and you just pick whatever style you want. And then when it's time for the sermon, the music stops in all these different venues. When it's time for the sermon, a screen comes down and there's the pastor preaching on a screen the same message for all the different congregations. And this model is, is really growing like crazy. It's, you're finding it all over the country. Uh, the pastor at this video venue church interviewed said this, rather than asking everyone to gather for a blended service, we've emphasized and honored our differences by providing a wide variety of worship venues, each targeted at a specific homogeneous group. At present, our people can choose from 18 different worship options each weekend based on worship style, time slot, or location. The problem with blended services, he continues, is that half the people are happy half the time. But by offering multiple, multiple homogeneous options, you can say, if you don't like this service style, try another one. Half the people are happy half the time. You can just smell the consumerism in that, can't you? Is that what worship is supposed to be about? I mean, a lot of churches have fought the worship wars where one generation is fighting with another generation about the style of the music, but this takes it to a whole other level. Here's a, a poster. This is not from the church I was talking about. This is a different sort of video venue church. Uh, it's hard to read. I blocked out the name of the church because I didn't want to, you know. It's not a local church, don't worry. But it says, Sunday's at, name of the church. What's your style? Underlined. And these are the various things going on on Sunday morning. There's the worship center, uh, which is some kind of contemporary thing. Then there's overdrive. Who wants to go to overdrive for worship? That sounds like fun. Then there's the praise thing. There's the Spanish-speaking service. And there's this passion thing down there. But it's all about what's your style. Customize worship. And now it's being taken to a whole other level on the Internet, where there are virtual congregations and things like Second Life and in other places where you can go in and it's not too far away where you will actually be able to customize the songs that are sung just for you on the internet so you can watch and engage in the service from home, but you might be hearing completely different songs than the person in the apartment next to you who's logged into the very same church because it's about customization. Now, we shouldn't be surprised Oh, yeah, this, this kind of, it, it's basically the food court approach to church. That's Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, Long John Silver's, Dunkin' Donuts, and Baskin Robbins. It's kind of gross. They should have a defibrillator on the wall over there. <laughs> all right. All of this gets to something called the homogenous or homogeneous church growth principle. Uh, most of you, this might be the first time you've heard this term. If you've gone to seminary, I guarantee you've heard this term. 
Back in the late 80s, I think it was, some researchers started investigating churches in North America and finding out which churches grew fastest, meaning numerically. And what they uncovered was that churches that were homogenous grew most quickly. In other words, everybody in the church was more or less the same socioeconomic background, same ethnicity, things like that, roughly the same age. Those churches grew most quickly. But that quickly went from an observation about churches to a prescription. And more and more seminaries and church growth experts started pushing this idea that, you know, if you want your church to grow, if you really want to reach people with the gospel, you need to target a kind of person and build the entire church around that one demographic. So one... uh, proponent of this says, churches grow and grow best in their own homogenous unit, and in addition, people want their pastor to be like them, not too far above or below, not too far ahead or behind. In other words, we want a pastor who's as ridiculous and and, and completely ignorant about the spiritual life as we are, because it makes us feel bad when we have a really mature, godly person leading us. And we want somebody who's about our age, and we want somebody who shares our ethnicity, and we want somebody who shared our exact experience. You know, by this criteria, who would want to follow Jesus Christ? He's a carpenter. I'm not a carpenter. He's Jewish. I'm not Jewish. He lived in a culture 2,000 years ago. It's not exactly contemporary America. It doesn't fit this principle, but that's what's being advocated. This is Wynn Arn, church growth consultant. The goal of the homogenous or homogeneous growth principle is to remove every obstacle that might prevent a person from accepting Christ other than the cross. This has been the justification for this model, which is, you know what, if sitting next to somebody of a different ethnicity is going to be a barrier for that person coming to church, we're not going to make them do it. And if they really don't like traditional hymns, and they much prefer choruses or pop music or rock music, we're going to give it to them. We're going to give people everything they want so that we can reduce every barrier to them coming to Jesus. And on the surface, that sounds really kind of good, right? We do want people coming to faith in Christ. But here's the problem. There's an assumption here about the nature of the gospel, which has been fueled by our consumer culture, which I think is an error. Here's what it looks like. People, right? People disconnected from God. The popular view is that the cross, Jesus, his atoning death and resurrection, has worked to reconcile individuals to God. This is what's been taught in the North American church for a very long time. Jesus died for your sins. Accept Jesus as your Savior, and you will be reconciled to God. But what if the person on the left is African-American and the person in the middle is Caucasian and the person on the right is Asian-American? Well, that one goes to an African-American church, this one goes to a white church, and that one goes to an Asian church. Because all that matters is that individuals are reconciled to God. That's it. I don't think this is the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2 Not that I want to get into preaching this morning, but Ephesians chapter 2 says, and Paul's specifically talking about the division between Jew and Gentile, he says that through the cross, God has removed 
the wall of hostility that existed between these two ethnicities and has reconciled them, Jew and Gentile, into one new man and then together reconciled them to God. Now, the greatest division in Paul's viewpoint at the time, of course, being a Jew, was the ultimate difference between Jew and Gentile. And, of course, he goes on to say, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, free or slave, Greek or barbarian, all are one in Christ. So the view of the gospel that Paul gives us in the New Testament looks a little different. First, he says, the first thing that Jesus accomplishes is that he reconciles these different groups to one another through the cross. He, div- he breaks down the wall of division that has existed between various ethnicities or cultures or even economic classes. He says there's neither free nor slave anymore, which is an economic distinction in the first century. And that these groups have all been brought together and made one new man in Christ. And that after this, together they are reconciled to God. Now, in my view, this completely demolishes the pragmatism of the homogenous growth principle. Yes, it is true, it is a fact, it is verifiable that homogenous churches grow most quickly. But what's the cost? The cost is that we completely forget the horizontal aspect of the gospel. Jesus did not merely come to reconcile us to God as individuals. He came to reconcile humanity into one new person and then together bring that new community, the church, into union with God the Father. That's the gospel. But this is largely lost in North American culture because we have so exalted our consumer instinct of personal desire and customization that our attitude is, I shouldn't have to put up with anything that doesn't make me happy. I shouldn't have to sacrifice my desires. I shouldn't have to order off the shelf or off the menu. I should have it my way. And if I don't like the music at that church, I'm going to go someplace else. And if I don't like the color of the guy who's preaching, I'm going to go somewhere else. And if I don't like the style of how they do this or how they do that, I'm going to go someplace else. Personal desire becomes sacrosanct. Long after most secular institutions abandon it, the church continues to be a strong advocate of the pragmatic but erroneous separate but equal doctrine. You've seen this quote before, right? Do you know who said it? 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Who said it? Anyone know? Martin Luther King? He did say it. Do you know who he was quoting? He was quoting Billy Graham, his friend. It's most often attributed to Dr. King. This quote has a personal significance to me because of a, <laughs> something that happened to me when I was in seminary. I went to seminary up at Trinity in Deerfield, And at the time, I was an intern at a church in the area. It's not the church I'm currently at. And I was teaching a class of adults, most of whom were in their 50s and 60s. And it was the first day of the class, and I was going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And one of the major themes in 1 Corinthians is unity in the church. So early on in the class, 
they were very polite people. And, and somebody asked me uh, about my name, because I'd written my name up on the board, and it's an odd name. And they said, well, you know, what kind of name is Sky? And I went in to explain that Sky is a nickname, that my given name is Akash, which is a Hindi name, which means Sky in Hindi. So ever since I was born, I've just been called Sky. And so then somebody's like, oh, you're from India. And I said, well, not exactly. I was born in Berwyn, but um, my father's from India. And my mother is Anglo-American. She's actually Swedish and Norwegian. And my middle name is Charles, which is my Norwegian grandfather's name. So they're all kind of looking at me like, yeah, you're a freak. So we go on from there, and we go into the, this whole theme of unity in the church. And I mentioned this quote, 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And I asked the, the class, what do you think about that? Class is entirely white. So what do you think about that? And it's silent for an awkward amount of time. And finally, this guy in the back speaks up and he says, I think that quote is absolutely true and I think it's good. Yeah, that was my reaction. I, my, my, you know, is this what I'm hearing? I said, well, can you explain what you mean by that? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, the way I read the book of Revelation, every nation and tribe and ethnicity is going to be surrounding the throne of God. And if they're all going to be separate up in heaven, why can't we all be separate down here? Now, I'll tell you what really hit me that, that morning. It wasn't that somebody with that kind of racist thought lives this far north of the Mason-Dixon line. What shocked me was about five minutes earlier, I had just explained that I come from a multi-ethnic home. And the immediate question that came to my mind is, where around God's throne am I going to be? Which group do I belong to? Or is there some island of misfits for people like me up in heaven? Now, there's a longer story behind that. You can read about it in the book. But this reality continues long after Brown versus the Board of Education, and long after the Civil Rights Movement, this still exists in the church, I think, because we have allowed consumerism to shape our gospel. And we have made it so individualistic and about our personal desires that all that matters is my personal reconciliation to God and not our reconciliation as his people. Because it's about personal desire and customization rather than the fullness of the gospel, which actually is not about my personal desire, but about sacrificing my desires, taking up my cross, denying myself, and following Jesus. Now, I doubt I'm in a room full of racists here, but this still impacts every one of us. How do we put our personal desires ahead of the communion of saints. When we talk about preferences in the church or music styles or systems or whatever it might be, how hard do we fight for our personal preference versus unity with our brothers and sisters? In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, Father, may they all be one as I am in you and you are in me, may they be one in us so that the world may believe. It's 
part of the problem with the mission of the gospel in North America, the fact that the church itself is so disunified that people just don't believe in the reconciling power of the cross. I know this is a church that talks a lot about reconciliation and unity and race issues, which is great, but I think a lot of it is fueled by our consumer culture. We need to sometimes get down to those roots and look at that as part of the cause, the powers and principalities of the world that put the seeds of those divisions in our hearts. So what we've talked about today is how consumerism has shaped our view of community and the church, beginning with our relationship with institutions and belief that programs and systems create disciples rather than human beings in relationship with one another who are the vessels of God's spirit created in his image to be the agents of his kingdom. Shifting from relationship with institution to relationship with one another. And then secondly, how customization, the exaltation of personal desire and preference through consumerism shapes our belief that the church should be about pleasing my desires and instincts and preferences, which leads to homogenous congregations rather than the reconciliation across every barrier of society that Jesus came to accomplish. And the way to overcome that is exactly what you guys are doing in this church and to work hard at it. I talked to another church this week that's on a similar road as you guys and really valuing reconciliation. And one of the members of the leadership team of that church said that rather than trying to make everyone happy, as that quote earlier, you know, half the people are happy half the time. He said, our goal is not to make everyone happy. Our goal is to make everyone equally discomfortable or uncomfortable. What a different way of thinking about church that just flies in the face of our consumer instincts. I'm going to wrap it up because I think we can carry on the conversation downstairs. So let me pray. And then 10 minutes, David? And we'll meet downstairs. Let's bow. Our Lord, we marvel at what it is you have accomplished. That you have sacrifice yourself and overcome the powers and authorities and principalities of this world, not merely to reconcile us to the Father, but to reconcile all things. I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that we would be ambassadors of that reconciliation, that we would not hand over that calling to institutions or programs but that we would own it ourselves as the vessels of your spirit, the ambassadors of your kingdom. In our ordinary relationships with one another, I pray that others would recognize the presence of your power. I pray for this church and whatever interpersonal or larger conflicts may be brewing, whatever distrust or hurt feelings, whatever those strained relationships may be in this community, as there always are, I pray that your healing balm would come, that leaders and laity alike would lay aside their personal desires and seek the greater good 
and ultimately seek unity in you above everything else. Help us to lay aside our consumer instincts, those desires. May they be nailed to the cross and raise us to new life with new eyes, new ears, new hearts, ready to do your will. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.